Good morning, church. It is good to get to worship with you this morning. Uh, I'm Ryan, one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to get to open the word with you. This morning we are looking at Jonah chapter 4. This is the end of our series in Jonah. We've been in this for five weeks, and this is our the last chapter in the book. So I encourage you to open your Bibles and follow along with me if you have your Bibles uh, with you. And we will actually begin by reading verse 10 of chapter 3, and then we'll read through the end of the chapter. So if you are physically able to stand, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Starting in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plants. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we have had to be in the book of Jonah, to reflect on um, the lessons that we, we can learn from this book over the last few weeks. We thank you, Lord, for your gracious, merciful character. We thank you that you are compassionate and merciful, that you are kind to us when we do not deserve that. And Lord, I pray that this morning, as we open uh, open your word and hear from you, that you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would convict us, would, would remind us of your faithfulness, that you would reveal the brokenness of our hearts and our need for you, and that we would put our trust in you. Would your Holy Spirit be here and work in power, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, 
one uh, particularly bright spot during the pandemic, maybe this was the beginning or middle or so of the pandemic, uh, you may have seen was the uh, Some Good News Network by John Krasinski. This was a self-produced news show that he did out of his, his home. He shot in his home office and uh, just had a sign that his daughters had made that said Some Good News on the, on the back of it. And it was a, a show that was strictly him reading good news stories that he, he found uh, online. And some of these included, uh, you know, a town celebrating as a child got to leave the hospital and come home, uh, seeing patients who had beaten the virus, who had, who had overcome that, and who were get, getting discharged, and all the healthcare workers lining the hallways and, and celebrating with them. Uh, get, there were some cities that would erupt in applause every shift change, 7 a.m., 7 p.m., the whole city would would cheer for the healthcare workers as they were going through their shift change. Uh, sports leagues that were resuming, you know, family members getting finally to reunite and celebrate loved ones' birthdays. And it was just such a, a wonderful moment of celebrating good news, right? And we desperately needed some good news during those times. But, you know, it's so wonderful to get to hear good news. Maybe the only thing better than that is getting to share good news. When you get to tell others about something exciting in your life, like buying a condo or a house for the first time. You know, you get to, you show up at the house and you, you take pictures, you take video of you walking through and you've got the keys and you send it to all your friends and you say, yes, I'm now the, the proud owner of a mortgage, you know, and, and now I have lots of projects to do around my house. Or getting engaged, you know, you show off the ring and you tell the story doing a gender reveal for a baby, or potty training, successfully potty training your toddler. You send a picture of them sitting on the toilet, thumbs up, you know, and like 10 poop emojis, and you, you're just like, yes, thank you, I don't have to buy diapers anymore. You know, there's nothing better than getting to share good news with others. Uh, admittedly, Jonah's news that he brought to the Ninevites was less than cheery. It could have been, you know, maybe a little bit more celebratory. It was simply 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned, right? But you would expect that a messenger who brought this news, this important news to a people, uh, and that it, when it made a difference in their lives, you would expect him to rejoice in that, right? You would expect him to at least be happy about that. You know, he brought this news and it totally changed their life. And yet, in the final chapter of this book, we see instead just the opposite reaction from Jonah, which raises the question, of course, what was going on with Jonah? This morning, we're going to spend some time reflecting on what we learn from this passage, both about ourselves and about God. And we're going to consider what this teaches us about the condition of our hearts as well as the ambition of God's heart. And hopefully by the end of this, we'll reflect on this question, what extraordinary work of God might unfold when the people of God have the heart of God? When the people of God have the heart of God. So we'll begin first by reflecting on the condition of our hearts. And it starts with Jonah's reaction, which turns some heads and definitely shows us his heart. 
uh, in the very first verse, he's described as exceedingly displeased, which I I can't help but chuckle at that. I love that description because it just sounds like such a proper way of describing a temper tantrum, which is basically what he does. Uh, What has gotten under Jonah's skin here? His principal concern, if we were to summarize it, would be this. If I knew that you were like this, God, I knew that you were like this. I knew that you were going to bring me all the way out here, risking life and limb, and then after all of that, you were going to be kind to these people who don't deserve it. In other words, he's outraged that God did not punish the Ninevites for their wickedness. He's furious that God would relent from the judgment on this people that in in his mind so obviously deserved it. You know, Jonah wanted them to get their just desserts. And here we learn for the first time, the reason that Jonah ran from this call in the beginning of the book was precisely because he thought that God was going to be merciful. So Jonah's outraged at this. He's also, no doubt, a little bit embarrassed. If you remember in chapter 3, when he went and took this message to the Ninevites, he just said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And that was it. That was it. And now it looks like maybe that's not going to happen. Maybe Nineveh's not going to be overturned. And so there's sort of egg on his face, right? He's also somewhat rebellious here. Even after God has informed him that he's going to relent, Jonah ventures out east of the city where he camps out, and it says, till he should see what would become of the city. Which is funny because, you know, newsflash, God already told him what was going to become of the city. He was going to spare it. But he thought, you know, Jonah thought, well, maybe this repentance isn't genuine. Maybe it's not going to stick, and God's judgment will still come. That's at least what he's hoping for. And we're meant to recall Jonah in chapter 1, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah to go and proclaim this message, and he ran in the opposite direction. Here again, we have Jonah going in the in the opposite direction. He's going the wrong way again. Rather than being in the city, ministering to the people, he's going outside the city. And he's also a bit dramatic about all of this. If you, if you think about it, uh, he asked God twice to just take him out. He's like, my life is not worth living anymore. If things are not going to go this way as I had planned, as I had hoped for, just in my life right now. So all of this reveals some of the ugliness of Jonah's heart. We see some amount of hypocrisy, right? He was thankful earlier in the story when God showed him mercy, but now he's protesting that God is showing others mercy. He is somewhat self-absorbed and is showing a lot of self-pity. You know, he's focused on himself and his afflictions, but He fails to care about the well-being of others who would face affliction under God's judgment. And there's also some amount of fear that we see coming out of him. Almost certainly, he was thinking through what the long-term implications were going to be of his enemies being spared. You know, instead of uh, uh, dealing a blow to these oppressive imperial tyrants who were taking over the region, they were granted clemency which would leave this political threat to Israel as a nation still intact. And so he's thinking through what that's going to mean for his country long term and feeling some fear there. 
But this exposure uh, is cause for reflection. You know, we want to think about why are Jonah's pretty substantial failures included in this book? Why do we have this in our scriptures, in the canon? And there are, I think, a couple of good reasons. The first is that Jonah's flaws remind us that God works through imperfect and messed up people. Of course, this is the witness of Scripture. Throughout the history of Scripture, we see the, the heroes of the Bible, men and women of faith who are very flawed. You can think of example after example of person who fails significantly in their life. For all the saving that the Ninevites needed, Jonah shows us that he also is in need of saving. And this is good news because I don't know about you, but imperfect, messed up, and flawed certainly describes me. You know, we are a lot more like Jonah than we care to admit. We all have our blind spots and our struggles. We so often revert back to disordering these loves. At times we listen and at other times we run away. We oscillate between contentment and discontentment. We feel a mixture of you know, gratitude at times and then jealousy at other times, of fear of God and then times of fear of man or times where we feel peace with our circumstances and then other times where we feel great anxiety about what's beyond our control. Even as followers of Christ, we continue to experience every day <clears throat> the civil war between our flesh and our spirit. I feel daily just how much I need to change, how much I need to grow, and I see the painful deficiencies in my own heart. You know, I think back to, it was maybe four or five months ago or so, maybe my wife was probably, I don't know, seven or eight months pregnant, and uh, we got to the end of dinner time, and it's always the most chaotic time in our home, right? And so it was uh, time to go get a bath. The girls, my girls were going to go get a bath, so I was helping out, you know, trying to help serve, bless my my pregnant wife, and I'm going to go and take care of the girls and give them a bath. And so what's going to be a wonderful, in my mind, just a, a great time to bond and play and have fun uh, is nothing but that. We, from the moment we get to the bathtub, there is bickering between the girls. They're fighting each other. They're disobeying. Uh, they're complaining about this. The water's not hot enough. The water's, you know, the water's too hot. They're hitting one another. They're hitting me. They're telling me they don't want me to give them a bath. And so, oh my word, the first you know few minutes, I was trying to be patient and kind and redirect them and all of that. And by about minute ten, I had just I hit my my boiling point. I was like, I cannot do this anymore. And so I got up and I left the bathroom. Uh, and I I told Katie, my wife, I was like, you're gonna have to finish bathing them because I cannot with this right now. So I went outside and I took some time to cool off, to walk around the block and uh, cool off. And when I came back in, you know, uh, the girls are, they're finished with their bath and they're uh, ready for bed and they're, they're standing there, you know, looking kind of remorseful. And so they apologized for their behavior. And then I got to model repentance to them. I got to own my own sin and say, hey girls, that was not the, uh, a very patient way for me to respond that wasn't the right way for me to deal with that situation. And so I got to ask for their forgiveness and we got to reconcile. 
And my wife, Katie, she was just, she was so quick to forgive me. She was so wonderful. Just as soon as I had finished cleaning the bathroom and washing all the dishes and reorganizing her closet, she was, she, she just told me, yeah, you're, you're good to go. You're, uh, don't worry about it. You know, if we, if we trust in Christ, we have received and are receiving his grace. But we are still very much people in process. We are people who are working that grace out into all of our lives and pressing that out every single day. And I'm thankful that God does not wait for us to be perfect before he uses us. Just as he used an imperfect prophet like Jonah, so he wants to work through us today. But a second reflection we see about uh, the condition of our hearts is that Jonah's shortcomings show us that God not only works through us, flawed as we are, he continues working on us. He continues working on us to refine us. One of the central focuses of this book is how God is working to change Jonah. There are four references uh, to appointments in the book, things that God appointed. One was earlier in chapter one where God appointed the fish to come and swallow him up and take him back to dry ground. And the other three come in this chapter. First, he appointed a plant that uh, grew up and gave him some shade. Then he appointed a worm to come and eat that plant, and the, the plant fell down and withered. And then he appointed this wind that was just blasting him and the, the sun that scorched him. And every example of God's sovereign intervening work in this book is to work on Jonah's heart. Isn't that interesting? Jonah had a mission, yes. He had a, he had a ministry. He had something important to do, and that was significant. But a big part of this book is not actually about Jonah's ministry. It's not actually about his mission and his work. It's about the sanctifying work that God was trying to do in Jonah. This reminds me of the well-known John Newton hymn <coughs> that was written back in the 1700s. It goes like this. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answered my request, and by love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou might find thine all in me. You know, we opened this 
semester with a reflection on the fact that God wants to do a transforming work in us, that he wants to change us and transform us and renew us day by day, and that he wants to use us to make a difference in the lives of this world, in the lives of other people and in this world. That transformation that we need is radical. Here, we see just how God accomplishes that. He works to transform us by his grace through and in our circumstances. You know, how often do we think of difficult circumstances as impediments to life and to the, to the goals that we're trying to accomplish? You know, as, as speed bumps and detours or outright collisions that are slowing us down or setting us back from where we're trying to, to go. It's actually just the other way around. All our circumstances, the good, the bad, and the ugly, are under the sovereign hand of God. The surprising deliverance or provision at our greatest point of need. The refreshing gift, refreshing gift of his mercy when we need respite and care. The unexpected loss that seems to just suck the breath out of our lungs the agonizing seasons of drought and pain that leave us feeling like we're just barely hanging on. God is with us through every one of those seasons, providing, blessing, sustaining, correcting, and comforting us. And in all of that, he's teaching us to look to him. Amy Carmichael was a 20th century missionary, early 20th century missionary to India, where she opened an orphanage amongst other ministry initiatives and and served for 55 years. Uh, Around the age of 64, she suffered from a fall that uh, left her pretty seriously injured and and disabled, so she had to be bedridden for the last uh, couple decades of her life. And she suffered all kinds of opposition and threats in the context that she was trying to do ministry. So her life was, was pretty filled with dying to self, experiencing suffering in order to care for others and share the gospel. Uh, and she penned these words at some point in her life. She wrote this, I have noticed that when one who has not suffered draws near to one in pain, there is rarely much power to help. I've wondered if it can be the same in the sphere of prayer. This pain accepted and endured gives some quality that would otherwise be lacking in prayer. What if every stroke of pain or hour of weariness or loneliness or any other trial of flesh or spirit could carry us in a pulse beat nearer some other life, some life for which the ministry of prayer is needed? Would it not be worthwhile to suffer? 10,000 times, yes. And surely it must be so. For the further we are drawn into the fellowship of Calvary with our dear Lord, the more tender we are towards others. God never wastes his children's pain. God never wastes his children's pain. The cumulative effect of all the circumstances in our life, the good and the turbulent and the difficult are to, uh, the, the cumulative effect is to work for our good. For in each one of these, we, are, we learn to give thanks to God who provides for what we need and also to cling to him for our sustenance. And as we do that, he works to transform us 
so that we can uh, have a ministry to others, that we can help and serve others. <clears throat> well, thankfully, this passage reveals not only the condition of our hearts, but also the ambition of God's heart, a contrast between the, true, the, the two. So we see, secondly, the ambition of God's heart. And it begins with a reflection on the beauty of God's character. When Jonah laments that God would be willing to grant clemency to these people, he audaciously cites uh, God's character as the problem. You know, he, he admits that he did not want to come to Nineveh in the first place because he knew that God was, quote, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Which I have to say, sounds kind of like someone complaining that their best friend is too loyal, that the, their chef made their meal too delicious, you know, or their football team scored too many points. It's, it's like, well, isn't that what you want? Like, isn't that the point? Evidently for Jonah, the answer to that was no, not if it meant that his enemies were going to get something good. But of course, this is who God is. This is exactly how God describes himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. When Moses gets to see just a glimpse of his glory, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's a gracious and merciful God. He does not deal with us as we deserve, and he does not give us what we should receive. Instead, he wants to give us far better. Like a good father, he delights in showering us with gifts, gifts that are priceless, gifts of greater worth than all the precious metals and jewels of the world. He wants to lavish on us treasures so valuable and so innumerable that it makes an Elon Musk look poor, right? But his gifts are not material. They're not status. They're not wealth. They're not success. They're not fame. The gift he wants to give us is far greater. He wants to give us himself. He wants our daily lives to be filled with his presence, with his peace, with his joy. He wants our hearts to be full and overflowing with his love. And he wants to make that possible. And so he does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he offers us grace. He extends to us mercy and he gives us himself. He's slow to anger. He's patient with us in our bumbling and fumbling about. He's not easily provoked by our failure, our short-sightedness, or our forgetfulness. He's not irritated by our ineptitude, and he's quick to forgive our offenses. You know, maybe you grew up in a home where that wasn't the case. Perhaps you had a parent with a temper on a hair trigger, and you're just always walking around on eggshells, not wanting to set them off. Or perhaps you grew up where disappointment and frustration was communicated more passive-aggressively, right? I just want you to know this, that your Heavenly Father does not relate to you like that. He is patient. He is gentle. He's not irritable or easily offended. He will never give you the cold shoulder or reject you for not measuring up. He is always, always there for you. 
he abounds in steadfast love. He's more faithful than your closest friend, more loyal than your dearest relative. His love endures through all things, and he will never let you go. When we fail, he forgives. When we are flaky, he remains steadfast. When we walk away, he stands ready to welcome us back. He compensates for our shortcomings, and he covers over our iniquities. And his arms are always open wide. And he relents from disaster. He is all of this to everyone who will look to him in faith. No exceptions. Disaster is what our rebellion deserves. But for all who will come to him in sincere faith and repentance, he's willing to spare us of that calamity. Not only to spare us, but to save us. Because the ambition of God's heart is the redemption of his creation. Twice, God cross-examined Jonah with this question, do you do well to be angry? And the Lord follows up the second question there with some simple logic. He says, Jonah, you are so distressed about the loss of this plant that you did not even create. You know, it's a, it's a weed that, that popped up overnight and then was gone. How much more distressed should I be about these 120,000 people and the animals that I did create, these people who are made in my image? And not only that, these people do not know their right hand from their left. They don't know. They don't know God. They don't know how they're to live. No one has come to them. No one has told them. And so the Lord is explaining to Jonah why he is justifiably compassionate. But he's trying to teach Jonah more than that. He wants Jonah to understand his heart. And that is that he is a creator God who cares deeply about his lost creation. He wants his creation, to turn back to him, to come back to him. His desire is to redeem his creation from the midst of all their brokenness. That's what he's been working on from the beginning of the foundations of the earth, that his rebellious and self-destructive image bearers would lay down their arms and return to him and find peace. And that isn't limited to any ethnic group. It isn't limited to culture. It isn't limited to any language. It isn't restricted to those who are deserving, nor is it reserved for the moral and the religious. No one is deserving. No one can merit it or accomplish this on their own. God's desire is for the light of the knowledge of him to go to the ends of the earth, to every people group, every nation, every society, and for them to turn back to him. As the psalmist says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing 
for joy. That's the heart of God. And the point, and that's the point that Jonah is left to consider as this book closes. You know, he, Jonah got to see a glimmer of this, like light that was coming through a cracked door. How much more so do we get to see it now in Christ? Because in Christ, the door has been swung wide open. And we behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus, too, went outside the city. But he didn't go to sit out there and watch for God's judgment to come down on the people. Instead, he went outside the city to be crucified and to have God's judgment come down on him in their place. At the height of the passion narrative, as the Roman soldiers ran spikes into Jesus' wrists, he cried out in prayer, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. They do not know. Even as the incarnate Son of God was, was giving his life and his body as a sacrifice for our sins, his heart was one of compassion and mercy for his creation that does not know, that does not understand, and that even included his executioners. Do you know the heart of God for you? Do you know the heart of God for this world? A couple of months ago, um, my three-year-old, there's a, a, a biting incident, right? And so she had to go to timeout and reflect on her decision, right? And uh, as Katie and I were walking by the, the hallway, we heard her sitting in there in the foyer in the timeout chair, kind of whimpering and, and crying. And she was just whispering to herself, Jesus doesn't love me. And Katie and I looked at each other, you know, with that look in our, uh, with that feeling this weight in our hearts. And so we, I, I went in there and knelt down beside uh, my daughter, and I said, Naomi, what is wrong? What's wrong? And she looked at me and she said, Jesus doesn't love me. Jesus doesn't hurt people. And I picked her up in my arms <coughs> And I gave her a hug and a kiss. And I just reassured her, Naomi, Jesus loves you. He always loves you. And there's nothing that you can do that will make you lose that love. And mommy and daddy always love you. And there's nothing you can do that will change our minds about that. But it just, it tore me up to think that this is, in her three-year-old little heart, that that was the conclusion that she drew, that she immediately went to shame and guilt because of her decision. How often and easily do we have that same sentiment? Do we feel like God views us as failures, as unacceptable, as unlovable? Well, that is not the heart of God. He wants you to know personally, that his grace and his mercy, his patience and his love are for you. 
He loves you, and he wants you to receive his love. And all you have to do is come to him in repentance and faith and receive his forgiveness and and this new life that he offers. But he also wants you to know his heart of love for this world. And he's given us an extraordinary opportunity. You think about his, his concern for Nineveh, that great city of 120,000 people. You know, the total human population on earth uh, of all time is estimated to be around 117 billion people. Right now, almost 8 billion people live on this planet, which means that about 7% of all the people who have ever lived in the history of the world are alive right now. One in 14 people are alive right now on this earth. And we live in the third largest country by population size, the third most populous country in the world. And we live in a country that was founded on and constitutionally protects the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion. And on top of that, the technological developments of the last century, but let alone the last 30 years, have shattered the, the barriers of domestic and international information and communications and transportation. So what does that mean? When you put all those things together, you and I have arguably the greatest opportunity to share Christ, the most resources to share Christ, and the most people with whom we can share Christ in the history of the world, in the history of the world. And God has, in his sovereignty, placed you in this time with that mission, with that purpose. You know, we see how mightily God worked through a very imperfect prophet in Jonah. How much more so with men and women whose hearts are aligned with his perfectly. What extraordinary work of God might unfold when the people of God have the heart of God. May that be our prayer, and may God do that work in our lives this year.